couple little quick uh, housekeeping things here before we move on with the service. I know uh, Renee mentioned it during announcements, but uh, you have an insert in there into the bulletin explaining the different small group studies. Uh, some are starting, one starting today, the rest are going on this week. There's some descriptions in there as well, too, concerning the, uh, some of the marriage classes. I know some people are asking some further information on that as well. Highly encourage you to get involved with those, either through the Ephesians one we're doing, or there's, like I said, two of the marriage ones. If you have any questions about those studies, ask the study leader, ask the group host. If you don't know who they are, find us. We'll point you in the right direction for that, and hopefully that blesses you guys as well. One other little quick housekeeping thing here I want to let you know about. Uh, my family and I are going to be taking off today. We have a pastor's conference we're going to in Indiana, so we're going to be taking off this afternoon. We'll be gone for a couple of days, and I'll be back Wednesday for church. So if you try to get a hold of me here over the next couple of days, I'm going to be out of state and away from my phone for a little bit. So I will be back Wednesday for church, though. Just want to let you guys know about that as well. So Acts chapter 21, we're going to be picking up here in verse 37. Now a little bit of background here before we continue our study. If you remember, we mentioned this the last couple weeks, we're really in the last stage of Acts. Over these next seven chapters, it really continues one ongoing theme, and that theme is pretty simple. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. He felt led by the Lord to go. So he went to Jerusalem, but it was prophesied that when he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be bound, he would be put in chains. And so everybody tried to deter him. And Paul said, no, if that's what the Lord has in store for me, that's what I went. So what we see now is this happening. And last week, Paul went to the temple. And as he went to the temple, the Jews were angry that Paul was there because they thought Paul was trying to teach people to not follow the law. So they then had a riot, a mob. Roman soldiers had to come in and they threw chains on Paul to protect him, but also to find out what's going on. Well, to kind of sum up the next seven chapters here, Paul is going to go through the judicial process, if you will, working his way up all the way to Rome till he gets a chance to talk to the emperor of Rome, hopefully himself. And this is what happens here over about the next seven chapters of the book of Acts is Paul's last trip, if you will, with this in the book of Acts. So we left off last week with this commotion, this mob, this riot. Paul is now in chains. They're trying to figure out what's going on. So you have this group of Jews that want to kill Paul. You have the Roman soldiers that are trying to protect him. Nobody knows what's going on. Verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarshish and Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. We'll stop there real quick before we get to his message. What happened is in 54 AD, and secular history tells us this, there was a man that decided he wanted to rebel against Rome. So he got a group of people around, about 4,000 people, went up into the hills around Jerusalem, and they were going to have this revolt, this rebellion. Well, the Roman soldiers went and crushed that very quickly, but the leader escaped. So since the leader escaped, this Roman soldier is thinking, hey, are you possibly the guy that had led this up? Are you kind of coming back here to cause more trouble? So that's why what he says in verse 37, can you speak Greek? Basically saying you're an educated person. And what Paul is trying to say here, yes, verse 39, I am. I implore you, let me speak to the people. Well, the Roman soldier says, why not? Let's give this a try. Maybe he can kind of settle everything down and see what kind of happens here a little bit. So now we get into this message, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when he heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. He finally has his opportunity. Do you realize how, Paul, how long Paul wanted this opportunity? He finally had his opportunity to get a chance to address Jerusalem. Even more so at the temple. 
So he's got their attention. Now, real quick, do you think this is what he envisioned? Do you think this is what he daydreamed about when he was kind of praying about going to Israel and getting a chance to share the gospel with the Jews? Do you think, oh, this is going to be amazing. There's going to be Roman soldiers guarding me. I'll be in chains. And there will be this mob that wants to kill me. No, I don't think that's what he envisioned in any way whatsoever. He probably envisioned going into the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, etc. My point is this. You need to be prepared in season and out of season. 2 Timothy 4.2 makes it very clear. Be prepared in season and out of season. You have no idea when, how, or what the Lord's going to ask you to do. We need to be ready and prepared to be available whenever, wherever, to say whatever, to whomever. That's part of what it is. We've got to be ready for this. Too often we have our schedule, and then we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I have a free moment here. How would you like to use me? Oh, now I'm busy again. I'll come back to you when I have time. We have a tendency to not rank God first, and so we're not prepared in season and out of season. Our life is busy, work is busy, school is busy, house is busy, kids, etc. And what happens is then we make the Lord fit into our plan. When really the Lord says, I should be topping everything here. Is this what Paul envisioned? I'm going to go out on a limb and probably say, I doubt it. But this was the time that it was available. Have you ever had that moment when the Lord called you to do something, and it's not the time you would have figured... It's the time the Lord had in store. I've been doing the Wednesday nights out here now for 17 years, and I've come to the conclusion this. Every Wednesday afternoon, my world will fall apart. I've just That's what's going to happen. Every Sunday morning, it's going to be a struggle to get out of the house to get here for the 830 service. I've come to the conclusion, we joke about this, that if we want the phone to ring, we just need to say loudly, it's devotion time, and the phone will ring. That's just what's going to happen. Be prepared in season and out season. We know this is coming. Anytime someone's ever filled in for me on a Wednesday, I always tell them, just expect to have the worst day you've ever had in your life on that job day. That's what happens. But if we know that's how the enemy works, then we should be prepared in season and out of season. I mean, that's kind of what the Lord is telling you. He says, hey, you want to go further in your walk with the Lord? Guess what? It's going to be difficult. Get prepared. Hey, you want to be a different man or woman for the Lord? Okay, be prepared. It's going to be difficult. Be prepared in season and out of season. Paul was prepared for this. He was prayed up. He was fasted up. He was ready. Maybe this wasn't what he originally wanted, to be in chains giving the message, but he's ready for it. Are we available whenever, wherever, to say whatever to whomever the Lord has in store for us? What happens? All righty, verse 3. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarshish of Sicilia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamil, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now let's just stop there real quick. Because what's happening here is verse 6. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Paul sees the light. But he sets up what's going on. This is what he was doing beforehand. First thing we have to talk about here is this guy mentioned in verse 3, Gamil. Gamil was a very respected Jewish rabbi. He's also mentioned earlier in the book of Acts. He was probably one of the most respected Jewish rabbis at the time. It would be the equivalent to us saying we had a Harvard education, if you will. By Paul mentioning him, he's saying, listen guys, I know what I'm talking about. Verse 3, taught according to the strictness of our fathers. And was very zealous. Very zealous. This guy... This guy was passionate about rounding up Christians and having them beaten and killed. How many widows did Paul make? How many orphans did Paul create? 
We'll never fully know. But this guy was passionate about it. And what he's basically saying here in verse 5, he's saying, guys, the high priest can bear witness to this. Paul was the hired hitman of the Jewish faith at this time. There's a group of Christians popping up over there. We'll send Paul. He'll take care of it. He'll round him up. He'll arrest him. He'll get him back. He can also say in verse 5, talk to the council, the leadership. He goes, I had their permission to do what I'm doing. This guy, once again, was the hired hitman of the Sanhedrin. So he goes, verse 6, and he sees the light. Verse 7, I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I think this is a very important point. Now, this is such a simple point. Don't let the simplicity of this point overshadow it. Verse 7, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Very simply put, When we as Christians are attacked or persecuted and we're hurting, Jesus hurts right along with us. Got to remember that. Now, parents out there, if you have kids, you know this. When your kids hurt, you hurt. Sometimes you hurt more for your child than what they actually do. So when I see here, verse 7, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes this personally. So by Paul attacking the church, Paul's actually attacking Jesus. Now, I hope that is actually an encouragement to you. Because we live in this world where it can get really lonely really quick. And some of you brought maybe some burdens in today, and you've tried talking to them to friends, you've tried talking to family members, maybe you've even tried talking to me or something, and you walk away from that conversation saying they don't get it. And that's true. Sometimes we can't. We can't fully understand someone else's pain. We can try to walk in their shoes, but we fully can't grasp it. It's so difficult to try to verbalize physical pain. It's tough to verbalize emotional pain. It's tough to verbalize spiritual agony. It's difficult to do. And so we get frustrated and upset because you don't get it. How many times have you talked to someone and you walk away from the conversation and your mind saying, they don't get it? You're right, they don't. There's only one person who does get it, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why he says, why are you persecuting me? I think sometimes as believers, instead of trying to get everybody to understand how much we're hurting, maybe we just need to go to Christ and say, Christ, you you get it. You understand. Think about these passages. You don't need to turn there. They're out of Hebrews. First one, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Speaking about Jesus, it said, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So basically, Christ came down to this earth to be like us, so that way he could understand us and be able to minister with us and to us. So that way, when I am struggling emotionally, spiritually, or physically, he's the one that gets it. One more verse on this, Hebrews 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus understands physical pain. He understands emotional hurt. He understands spiritual agony. He can relate to us. And we need to remember that. So when he says in verse 7, why are you persecuting me? He gets it. He completely gets it. Paul, by attacking the church, is attacking Jesus. Which really our point is, by us hurting, Christ hurts with us. Remember that when you're going through difficult times. Don't allow the loneliness of the situation and that depression and that discouragement to get the best of you. Just because no one else gets it doesn't mean your Savior doesn't get it. He understands. He gets it. So Paul now gets saved. Verse 9, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. 
Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked at him. Then he said, Then the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be as witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I find this interesting. Paul here gets saved. And we'll talk about all this in a little bit. But you notice first step, first step, verse 10, going to Damascus. First thing he's asked to do. And what happens in verse 10? Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. His first step is a step of faith where he needs to go into Damascus and just listen to the Lord. doesn't say anything else what he's supposed to do. Now, this is, once again, another simple point. And for some of you, you don't struggle with this. You don't. Some of you struggle with this mightily. God will not give you step two until you complete step one. Now, for some of you, that's no big deal. I have to be honest, and I hope I'm not putting myself up here. I, I think I'm okay with that. I understand sometimes that the Lord doesn't reveal the big picture. And we've got to be faithful in step one and trust that he'll reveal step two. And then once you do step two, he'll do step three. Paul's first act of obedience as a believer in verse 10 is to go to a town and just wait to hear what to do next. That's his first step of obedience. It's just in faith Obey. How many of you, if the Lord would lay something on your heart, your first question is, why? Where? What do you want me to do? I mean, if the Lord came to you right now and said, listen, just go to downtown Toledo. Just go to downtown Toledo and wait for the next step. Some of you in faith would just go. Some of you would say, why? Where? What do you want me to do? I I struggle with this with my kids. Every one of my children handle things in a different way. If I call a huddle, and that's what we do. We call a huddle. We get all the boys together, and I say, okay, listen, i got a job for you to do. And if I say, okay, this is what I want you to do. First, we're going to go outside, and then once we're going to go outside, okay, I need you guys to take care of the animals. I need you to pick this up, etc. I'll lay it all out. My firstborn, Elias, he'll say, what are we going to do next? What's the next step? What do you want me to do? What all this? And he'd be the type of kid that wants to take notes. He has to know every detail of what's going to happen before he can complete the task. And if I say, just go outside, buddy, he won't do it. A Judah, our second born, he just hears blah, 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 blah. He, he just follows Elias. So Now, the interesting one, my point, though, is Kenan, our third born. If I say, okay, guys, or what we're going to do, first thing we're going to do is go outside, and before I can even get to the second point, Kenan's already outside. Well, don't you want to hear the whole order? No, you said go outside. Blind faith. Kenan's the one that's going to end up being a missionary in Africa. God says, go, he'll go. Lias is going to end up being the joyless, miserable Christian that brings you all down. My point, though, is everybody handles things differently. And for some of you, if God says, go, you just go. Faith of a child, obedience. Some of you stop and want to know why. Paul's first step, and I want to repeat this point of obedience, was just doing it. Just do it. Go to Damascus. How many times are you trying to figure out what the second step is and the first step is just praying fast? Okay, I'll pray fast, but then what? I don't know. So I'm just praying fast first and then God will reveal step two. Well, I've been waiting long enough. I need to know what the next step is. You're not going to know step two until you complete step one. Paul completed step one, go to Damascus, and then the Lord can show him what's going on. Next point. Did you catch what Ananias said here in verse 13? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Ananias was obviously Baptist. We don't know that, you know. I'm not picking on Baptists. You know why? Because Baptists don't have a sense of humor. But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The people laughing aren't Baptists. But the point is, I'm kidding. I'm completely kidding. Please don't pick on me, Baptist. The point is, 
He calls him brother. And I want to make a couple points on this. Do you think that was hard for Ananias to call him brother? Now think about this. In one instant, number one enemy of the church became brother. Do you realize that? Now, the church is not huge at this point. I mean, it's, it's growing. There's thousands of people. But the ministry of persecution that Paul had, don't you think it's possible Ananias was touched by that? Don't you think Ananias had some friends, maybe some family members, some loved ones that were burden, beaten, persecuted, or maybe even put to death by Paul? Do you ever think it was hard for Ananias to go into Paul and look him in the eye and say, Brother, do you realize you are one instance away from your mortal enemy becoming your brother or sister in Christ? One instant away. That person you can't stand is one step away from becoming possibly born again and saved and your brother or sister in Christ. And at that point, you know what's expected of you? To accept the fact that they're a new creation in Christ Jesus. See, Ananias, when he was presented by the Lord to go talk to Paul, we don't have it in this telling in Acts. In the earlier version in Acts, Ananias basically sums it up by saying, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, imagine you're going to work tomorrow, and that person that's always been an issue, a problem, what have you, comes into you and says, guess what? Yesterday at church, I got born again and saved. I'm now your brother in the Lord. Can you say amen? Or are you going to say, well, let's give it some time and see? Brother Saul. It's a pretty powerful statement. Point number two on that. Do you think that was hard for Saul to hear? I mean, the past that he had. I heard a pastor say one time, don't you think that every time Paul went and preached the gospel, that the enemy just kind of had a list go through his head? As we mentioned earlier in the lesson, how many widows did Paul make? How many orphans did Paul make? Do you think it was hard for him to hear brother? Paul probably thought, I'm not qualified. I can't, you can't call me brother. See, the thing is, for some reason, the Bible likes titles. And the reason the Bible likes titles is because it helps us as sheep understand who's supposed to help us farther along in our walk with Christ. It's not there to make a hierarchy. It's not there to say, oh, that person has a title. No. But there's titles like elder, deacon, bishop, pastor. And those titles are there to help the sheep know who can I go to to help me go deeper in my walk with Christ. Now, my point is this. We're not qualified to do this. So I see Brother Saul, and I bet you Paul struggled. Sometimes people come up and say, Pastor, I'm like, oh, don't, don't call me Pastor today. If you would have known what I was doing earlier or thinking or no, just call me heathen, horrible sinner, James. That would probably make me feel better. And it goes back to this phrase that we've used out here before, that God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those that are called. You know, and it's this idea, what made Saul a brother? Jesus Christ. What makes me a pastor? Jesus Christ. What makes you whatever God has called you to be? Jesus Christ. It's not us. It's, the, it's him. Because we all have these moments of unqualified, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I shared this story with you a few years ago. I just want to repeat it because it fits in. A few years ago, when we started having a few more kids, you know, the way we do things out here is I try to take my family day on Fridays. So usually Thursday evening, we kind of shut the phone off. So Thursday evening, Friday, kind of just have that family time. As our family started to grow and get a little busier, Dawn said, can you try to just one extra day a month, just take an extra family day? So that way we could have a couple days to try to get stuff done, get everything. Because it's sometimes hard. You know, if you, for some of you that work like six days a week, you know how difficult it is one day to try to get everything done. So I said, yeah, we'll try this. So we try to take one extra family day a month. Now, a lot of those family days are days that maybe Dawn and I will go out and have a date night or try to do something like that. 
Well, the first extra family day that we did, and this was a couple years ago, we had one of the babies at the time, so we took him with us, and we said, this is our first extra family day, we're going to go out. So we went out, and we went up to Toledo, went to Spring Meadows there on Airport Highway, and we're just completely enjoying this, this extra day, just to refresh, regroup. And when I take Dawn out, spare no expense, I was going to take her to Bob Evans, you know, because that's... Nothing says romantic than eating with 80-year-olds. So I went to Bob Evans, and I'm not picking on 80-year-olds either, okay? Just I'm not. It's, it's, it's a good thing I'm leaving for a few days. So, we, and you know, I don't know how it was with you guys when you had little kids, but we don't go into the restaurant. We go get the menu, and we order the takeout, we eat in the car. That's, that's our romantic. So we sitting in our vehicle. We have our Bob Evans menu, thinking about what we're going to order, and it's just like, you know, a kid on Christmas. We're excited. So as we're sitting there, there's this car parked beside us, if you remember the story. And there is a guy and a gal, and they're having a very loud conversation. And the conversation escalating. It's getting louder to the point of like, you know, we should probably just move the vehicle because this is getting weird. And so you're kind of watching them but not watching them. And as the conversation is escalating, she winds up and hits him. So he winds up and hits her back. And this is in the car right beside us. So at that moment, and in my mind, all these thoughts are going through, and it was really just a split-second decision. I said this, and I quote, and I'm not making this up. I said, say something nice at my funeral. I said that to Dawn. I got out, go to the car beside, and I, and I, tap, I tap on the window. And they stop. They roll down the window. And, and like I said, at the moment, this is all happening quick. What's really going through my mind, thinking, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. What are you doing? What are you going to say? What are you going to do? And at this moment, I'm not kidding, there's also this fleshly response. Lord, this was our date night. This was our extra day, Lord. There's, what, 31 days in a month I couldn't be beside the couple on day 22 or something? You had to pick this today. That verse of be prepared in season and out of season went through my mind. It doesn't matter that it's your date night. This is what I want you to do. Second thing that went through my mind, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And that's where the Lord, I remember the Lord saying, you have to trust me. So I tap on the window. They put the window down. I said, what's going on? Classic response, nothing. I said, not nothing. I saw you two hitting each other. And I said this. I finally dropped the P word. I said, I'm a pastor. And the girl goes, quote, for crying out loud. That's what she said. <laughs> so I sit there, and we do this little impromptu counseling session, and we, prom- we go through all this other type of stuff. The details don't matter, but we end up praying, talking, and everything like that. And my whole point is, be prepared in season and out of season. How many times do we do this? You get home from a long day, it's your time. You know what? You're going to get up in the morning, it's a busy day, so it's my time. The longer I walk with the Lord, the realize I don't have any time. I'm called to work until I die, and then i got rest and relaxation for all of eternity. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a rest. The Bible talks about Sabbath rest, etc. There's nothing wrong with that. But we just got to be prepared in season and out of season. And we got to remember, you are not, I am not qualified to do anything. It's the Holy Spirit that takes care of that. So when I see this brother Saul, I don't know what was going through Paul's mind, but I wonder if maybe Paul was thinking, brother, no. But he is now because of what Christ did on the cross. So what happens now? He gets up, verse 17, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So now he has his mission. 
And look at Paul. I, I don't know for sure in verses 19 and 20 if he's trying to, I don't want to say get out of it. I think he's almost clarifying, saying, Lord, you want me? You want me? I, I mean, I'm the one, verse 19, that I was imprisoning people. I was beating those people. Verse 20, I'm the one that stood when Stephen was martyred, and I held the clothes consenting to his death. We talked a couple weeks ago when Paul went and stayed the night at, uh, at the house of Philip, how Philip and Stephen both came into the church at the same time. Do you think that was difficult for Philip to say, here's the guy that basically helped kill my friend, but now he's my brother? I will repeat this point. You are one instance away from your mortal enemy becoming your brother or sister in Christ. Paul is saying, is it me? How can I do this? The answer, verse 21, depart. I will send you. I will do it. See, we have this tendency to make every reason and excuse of why we can't do something. A great example of this is Moses. If you remember correctly, when Moses was 80 years old, God called him out of the wilderness and said, I'm going to use you now to uh, go free Israel from uh, the Egyptians. And if you remember the conversation that God and Moses has, Moses basically has excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And God very patiently knocks down every one of those excuses. Finally, at the end of the conversation, Moses basically says, I don't want to. And that's when God got angry. My point is this. God will not get angry with you. He'll just knock down your excuses. Lord, I can't say anything. Well, then I'll guide and direct your words. Lord, I'm not strong enough to go do this. Then I will give you strength. Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. Just trust me. But when you say, Lord, I don't want to, that's when the Lord gets upset. And I just wonder, do we use excuses to keep us from doing what the Lord has called us to do? A lot of times people come into my office and they say they want to talk about something and they have something they want to do and they say, I want to do this. And before I can even say anything, then they start rattling off 10 reasons why they can't. Now, if I know the person well enough and I know they can handle a little bit of straightforward, I'll usually say something to the fact of, are you done making excuses now? Because that's the truth. We usually just make excuses. Paul, I'm not saying he was making excuses, but I see verses 19 and 20, and it's almost like, Lord, are you sure? My past, my past keeps me from serving. You remember what Paul wrote himself in Philippians 3. He said, I have to put the past behind me and press towards the goal of Christ. What did he have to put behind him? This guy brought more baggage into his relationship with Jesus than what we could ever imagine. He had to put that behind him. I see this a lot with parents, especially with parents. Their child is growing up. Their child is starting to make decisions that are not good, not biblical. The parent says, I don't know what to do. We say, why don't you go talk to them and tell them that's not right, that's not biblical. That's not the pure way that God wants them to live. I can't tell them that because I used to do the same things when I was their age. Okay, well, truth is still truth. How many times do we say that as a Christian? Well, I can't tell them anything because I do that. I can't tell them anything because that's what I used to do. And we have all these excuses of our past, of choices we made, when really we just need to stop and say, you know what, I have moved past the past in Jesus Christ. And I am a new creation in the Lord. So by me stating that what you are doing is wrong, is not me saying I'm perfect, but it's me saying I want to speak truth to you because I care. We've got to remember that. Sometimes those scars that you have from your past, they need to be shown a little bit. I heard a great testimony one time. And it was talking about Jesus in Revelation. The Bible talks about Jesus in Revelation and says that he looks like the lamb that was slain. Some people believe that Jesus will carry the scars and the marks of uh, the cross through all of eternity as a visible reminder. I don't know for sure. But the person giving a testimony said this, So often in our walk with Christ, we try to hide our scars. We don't want to talk about what we did when we were a teenager. We don't want to talk about the bad decisions we made. So we hide all these scars. So when we come into church... 
We look like we've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, have the whole Bible figured out, and we have no background whatsoever. I was born and saved the next day, and then started speaking in tongues in day three. You know, this type of almost fakeness. I'm not saying you go out and flaunt your scars. Oh, let me tell you about what I did. I've heard people's testimonies. Testimonies like that, it's like 45 minutes of, let me tell you everything horrible I did. Oh, by the way, I got saved. Amen. We try to glorify. No, don't glorify the scars. But also don't be afraid to say, you know what? I've been down that path. I've done that. Let me tell you what Jesus did. We have to realize that. Paul had a past. There's no way around that. And he's open about it. Because part of his testimony is the scars that God got him through. Now, what I want to finish up with this is this, because we're going to finish up here with communion. I just want to say a couple things here to close up. As we look at this message that Paul gives us, what's this remind us of a few points? The first one, be prepared in season and out of season. Whenever, to whomever, to say whatever, whenever, wherever. That's what it is. Are you ready? Are you prepared for that? Number two, you see this idea of when we hurt, Jesus hurts. I don't know what you're struggling with today. Christ knows your pain. He does, and he cares. He cares deeply. Next one, God does not give us step two until we complete step one. It's a walk of faith. A walk of faith. Please remember that. And lastly, remember these points here about Paul and Ananias. Brother Saul, was it difficult for Ananias to say? Was it difficult for Paul to hear? But there can be peace. I'm telling you right now, I don't care how rough it has been between you and the Lord. There can be peace. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. We can put the past behind us. Now, what I want to do is this. So often when we do communion, it's important for us to stop and realize what we're really doing here. And what we're going to do is this. is um, In a little bit, Pastor Rich is going to come up. He's going to lead you in communion. I'm going to be back there in the back. I call it a reverse altar call. Since this is going to be pretty busy up here, I'm going to be back there. You can pop back there and pray with me if you want about anything. But there's two things we need to do. Two things before we do this. And it's out of Corinthians. It says this. Whoever eats this bread, talking about the bread and drink of communion, bread or drinks, excuse me, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Before we partake of communion, we're called to examine ourselves. I believe this is two things. Number one, if you are here this morning and you are saved, this is a time for you to stop and say, am I the man of God he's called me to be? Am I the woman of God that he's called me to be? Very simple. Examine yourself. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Take it to the Lord. Is there baggage that you've brought in? Take it to the Lord. Is there any type of root of sin or bitterness that's built up? Take it to the Lord. Examine yourself. This is the point of it. This is supposed to be a time of healing as you come to this and you partake of this. You're, this is the closest you get to being at the cross with Jesus. Is by partaking of this, it's the body and the blood of the Lord symbolically. And what it is, it's a picture of saying, I want that. That healing, that forgiveness. I want to be a new creation in the Lord. You want to be just like Paul was. Put the past behind you and move on, move forward. Examine yourself. Number two, if you're here this morning and maybe you would say, I don't know where I'm at with the Lord, I don't know. I think it's important to stop and just very straightforwardly, very simply explain this to you. A lot of you know this, so as you know this, just enjoy the truth and simplicity of the gospel. We're all sinners. That's step one. You've got to understand that. We're all sinners. Every one of us. Now, the problem is some of you are morally 
good sinner. But you're still a sinner. Some of you are more moral that may not be saved than people that claim to be saved. Some of you may be more good than people that claim to be saved than what they are. So you may be a moral good sinner. Moral good sinners still don't get into heaven. We need to understand this point. So often when we present the gospel, we have a tendency to present the gospel like this. Jesus loves you, which is true. He has a plan for your life, which is true. And he'll take you out of whatever you're in, which is true, and give you a purpose and a peace in life. All true. Jesus did not die on the cross for me to have fun in life. He died on the cross because I was an awful, despicable sinner that needed that be taken care of. Jesus still does love you. He does have a plan for you, and he does have a purpose for you, and he wants to fulfill that purpose. But here's the problem. The sin problem has to be dealt with. If you just present the gospel as the Lord wants to give you a purpose in life, I've met some people who aren't saved who have a really good purpose in life. Jesus died because of this sin issue. That's what has to be addressed. So, there's very simply speaking, there's a heaven, there's a hell. You are an eternal being. You will live on forever. Not in this flesh, no, but you will live on forever. Who you are, your soul, your spirit will live on forever. Now, to get into heaven, you can knock on that door all you want and say, I'm a morally good person. But once again, morally good people don't get in. Sinners who have been forgiven get in. And this is why it's so important to understand what Jesus does. We, through our sin, cannot get into heaven. We can't. So therefore, there has to be somebody who takes care of that debt for me, and that has to be Christ. He's the perfect one. He's the one that who was without sin died to take away sin. If I would die for your sin, it wouldn't do any good because there's still sin, mine and yours. Jesus, who is perfect, is the only one that can do that. So when we present the gospel, I want to present the gospel to you completely. Yes, there is a purpose for your life. Yes, God desires to love you. And yes, he wants to give you a plan and a purpose to fulfill you. But there's also this sin problem that has to be dealt with. And that sin has to be dealt with through Christ and the cross alone. So as you get ready to partake of this communion, there has to be a time where you stop and you say, Am I saved? If I'm not, I want that today. And that's what Pastor Rich is going to talk to you about as well too. And I'm also going to be in the back there. So during communion, feel free to pop back there. Come back and pray with me. We've got a couple of chairs set up. After church, feel free to grab me. Remember, I'm taking off this afternoon. I won't be back till Wednesday afternoon, so I don't get a chance to shake all of your hands. Marv will finish you out with a word of prayer if I'm busy praying. But focus on this. Examine and say what needs to be fixed, what needs to be changed. And then through the Lord, those changes can come through communion, through Him. Rich, if you want to come forward here.